You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. We've got rules and regulations. Rules and regulations on 21st Century Radio. We call them R&R. What are they? Human beings aren't machines. Nope, we're not. We have an immortal component which is wiser than you think. Two, we are not alone in the universe, never have been. We live with invisible beings inside and outside our physical bodies. And three, what we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. And you know what we have done to the earth and she's just giving it right back to us, and I'm afraid this is going on, going to go on for years and years ahead. Well, during our first hour and a half, we will be, be reviewing the book Glimpses of Eternity, sharing a loved one's passage from this life to the next by Dr. Raymond Moody, who first joined us in March 1988. And many times after that, of course. And also, it's written with Paul Perry. With us also is Dr. John Turner, who joined us about a year and a half ago to talk about his book, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, A Doctor's Journey Through the Worlds of Divine Revelation, Near-Death Experiences, Universal Energy, etc., etc. Dr. Raymond Moody is a best-selling author of 11 books, including Life After Life, which has sold a measly 13 million copies. <laughs> 13 million copies worldwide. Is that all? There's a little bit of interest in this, huh? And, of course, Reunions is one of his other books that we talked about, as well as numerous articles in academic and professional literature. Dr. Moody continues to capture enormous public interest and generate controversy with his groundbreaking work on near-death experience and what happens when we die. He is a world-renowned scholar and researcher. Dr. Moody is the leading authority on near-death experience, a phrase he coined in the late 70s. Dr. Moody's research into the phenomenon of near-death experience had its start in the 1960s. The New York Times calls him the father of the near-death experience. They don't say it that way, but I did. He got his M.D. from the Medical College of Georgia, 1976. He got his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Virginia, 1969. An M.A. in philosophy from the University of Virginia, 1967. B.A. with honors in philosophy of, from the University of Virginia. He's a University of Virginia man. But he's more than that. Dr. Jack Turner is a noted neurosurgeon with a degree in engineering physics from Ohio University. He is also the author of the bestseller Medicine miracles and manifestation a culmination of 20 years of research into the field of neurosurgery via integral medicine examining metaphysical events such as remote viewing telepathy consciousness and life after death as verifiable manifestations of the way in which the human brain interfaces with universal consciousness dr turner has provided invaluable wisdom, research, and advice for ongoing development of the film, which we're going to touch on a little later on. He is also one of the leaders for the online forum for the film entitled B-A-R-D, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. It's Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, you two guys. Well, Bob, thank you so much for having me. It's great to hear from you. Oh, Brother Ray, I haven't heard from you since 2002. That's right. I've got two little ones now, two adopted ones, and they well, keep us pretty busy, uh, 12 and 9, but uh, I always think of you, Bob. I know you and, do. And uh, it's just so delightful to uh, to hear your voice again. Ditto. Ditto. Uh, uh, Jack, you there? I'm here. Uh, maybe we're all brothers today. This will be a good conversation then. Thank you for uh, having me back, and uh, thank you, Dr. Moody, for allowing me to join you again. Okay. Well, well, are you going to say something, Dr. Moody? I'm sorry. No, just that uh, this is a true delight to me because uh, I think that we're in a very crucial period of world history right now, and uh, I think all three of us are aware of that, and that uh, I think the kind of work that we've all been interested in for a long time is um, is, is very important in, in the world developments that are going on right now. 
Well, that's true, uh, especially in the work we're going to talk about tonight. This is the most important book I have read in a long time. It really opens up the field, a field of, uh, of knowledge that I think is going to be so important to most human beings because we all have this uh, involvement with death sooner or later in our life. Now, Dr. Moody, what is new in the field of near-death studies? Well, Bob, what I am confident in saying now is that this experience that is known all over the world now and has been studied by physicians all over the world, which we've come to call the near-death experiences, which happen to people who are on the verge of death, that every element of that of that experience also occurs often among the bystanders to the death of a dying loved one. Um, that is that we, I can confidently say to you that uh, very often when someone is there in the final hours or uh, minutes of a loved one's life, that as the person in the bed passes away, the bystanders themselves often have all of these phenomena that we have come to call the near-death experience. For example, the bystander may say that as the person in the bed dies, the bystander seems, uh, sees what seems to be a transparent replica of the person sort of rise up from the body. This is often described as, as globular in form or golden in form or other times sort of conforming to the shape of the living body, but a transparent replica. Often also we hear that the bystanders themselves, as a person in the bed passes away, that the bystanders themselves may feel that they leave their physical bodies and view the scene from above. Also we hear of bystanders hearing beautiful music, um, the, the same kind of music that we hear reported by people with near-death experiences. We often hear the bystanders tell us that as the person in the bed dies, the room fills with this, this intense light that uh, gives great comfort and peace and is often sort of pervaded almost with this uh, compassionate love. We hear bystanders tell us that as the person that they're with dies, that they see what we would call apparitions or spirits of the dying person seem to appear at the bedside to escort the dying person away. And most remarkably of all, Bob, I have numerous cases uh, in which the someone at the bedside empathically co-lives the panoramic life review of the person who is dying. And what this seems to signify to me is that this essentially does away with the neurophysiological explanation that is often advanced to explain away these near-death experiences. That is that when someone almost dies and comes back with one of these reports, then at least in our society, a superficial, uh, superficially a plausible explanation of the near-death experience is that as the person dies, the oxygen flow to their brain is diminished, and hence uh, this hallucinatory phenomenon is thrown up, which is called a near-death experience. But the trouble with that explanation is that Identically, this same phenomenon is described quite often by the bystanders at the bedside of the dying. And so in those cases, uh, there is no illness. The bystanders are not ill or injured. There's nothing going awry with their brains. So I think, Bob, that this takes us into an entirely different level of of debate about this phenomenon. I think um, that we've now got to own up to the fact that something is going on here which is, um, is just very, very difficult, I think, to account for 
and and the terms of explanation that are that are most widely accepted in this society. I think that um, another way of saying this is that, in effect, I think that we can almost do away with the category of near-death experiences and talk about this phenomenon that occurs at the bedside of the dying, both both to dying people, but also to the people standing around. And that is something that is just very, very difficult to to put together, I think, in uh, in the um, the normal scientific world in which we live. And I know that uh, Bob, you have been a student of Wittgenstein, and I know in the past, and Hume, and um, will understand what I mean by scientific. Yes. That um, unfortunately, in the modern world. Um, uh, the the society has induced us to assume that the only rational way of of establishing the truth is through the scientific method, and that's just not correct. Matter of fact, it's an incoherent uh, point of view, and that I think to really begin to comprehend this these empathic or shared death experiences. We're going to have to come up with entirely new methods of explanation and exploration. So I think that we are just on the cusp here of, I am confidently saying, um, rather astonishing new developments in the rational investigation of the, what I regard anyway, and I know you do too, the, the greatest um, mystery of humankind um, which is the mystery of life after death. Well, it certainly is that. And uh, as a matter of fact, you had a personal death, ex- a near, uh, excuse me, a shared death experience, which we're going to talk about later on, if you don't mind. Oh, surely. But I want to get to Dr. Jack Turner here. Jack, what led you to work with Dr. Moody? Well, I would say, Bob, that I'm rather working for Dr. Moody uh, because we're involved in a couple of projects. And, of course, I followed his work from from the beginning with Life After Life and learned all about what he's learned with uh, Dr. Ritchie and how it all began. And then through my career, I've had cases of patients who will tell me about these experiences. But, of course, I had been studying them. And it's interesting. I didn't seek out the patients. They kind of volunteered this information, but uh, somewhat reluctantly, but cautiously. It's not something that they like to talk about because they, they someone has always shot, shot them down when they brought up what happened. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, we're involved in several projects that we're going to talk about today, and, and the first is Dr. Moody's lecture series, which will begin uh, in 2011. We're not sure of the exact date yet, but it's called the Luminary Lecture Series. And he'll be the first of the great people who have done some magnificent work to begin his talks. And also a very interesting workshop in which Dr. Moody can speak of his logic and what he's discovered and what he calls the wisdom of nonsense. And I'll probably leave that to him to discuss. But we're involved in a couple of uh, film projects and TV projects, and these are all exciting. So, so Bob, we're really working for Dr. Moody because I think this book, uh, his Glimpses of Eternity is certainly a really groundbreaking book because he's collected many cases. I think the first book ever that's been able to review a lot of this. Uh, you know, it's been known, you know, in the past that these things have happened, but yet Dr. Moody has put it together in a way that actually and literally makes light come to those pages of the book. So I'm quite honored to be working for Dr. Moody. Well, that's pretty understandable. I'm honored to have both of you on this show, especially. Uh, on this particular work, because I think it's going to give people a great deal more hope to get on with their lives rather than than to feel that uh, they have lost something that they'll never experience again, which is certainly going to be the big surprise as we pass on to the other side and welcome welcomed by many of uh, our loved ones that have already passed on before us. We're going to need to take a break here, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Moody if he will explain or tell us about his near-death, shared near-death experience uh, within his family. 
This is 21st Century Radio. I'm uh, what's left of Dr. Bob Hieronymus and his incarnation friends. And our guests are Dr. Raymond Moody and Dr. John Turner. Tours of the Afterlife and Moody's new book, Glimpses of Eternity, sharing a loved one's passage from this life to the next. Published by Guideposts. And that's linked on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Hello, this is Stanley Kripner. I'm professor of psychology at Saybrook Graduate School in San Francisco on behalf of 21st Century Radio, run by Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And I would certainly encourage listeners to stay tuned because you will hear things on 21st Century Radio that you'll hear nowhere else on the airways. Well, thank you, Dr. Kripner. He was my mentor worked under him for five and a half years to finish my Ph.D., and he was tough. <laughs> well, he should be, of course. You don't go to get your Ph.D. just to have a good time. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guests are Drs. Raymond Moody and John Turner, tours of the afterlife and Moody's new book, Glimpses of Eternity, sharing a loved one's passage from this life into the next, published by Guideposts on the web at toursoftheafterlife.com, linked on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Now, Raymond, um, you had a personal experience that occurred, let's see, I guess it was May and May of 1994. I did, Bob, and in terms of the background of this, as you know, I had uh, first heard a living person reported near-death experience in uh, 1965. That was Dr. George Ritchie, a person you know very well as well. And so when I, uh, then I got my Ph.D. in philosophy. I started teaching philosophy at East Carolina University. But uh, in 1972, I, I entered medical school after having been a philosophy professor for three years. So when I entered medical school in 72, I already had quite a number of these near-death experiences that I had collected from students and business people there in the town where I lived in North Carolina. But um, anyway, around the end of my first quarter in medical school, I was in the bookstore one night, and a very nice lady came in and introduced herself as Dr. So-and-so. I I uh, won't use her name, but she uh, I immediately recognized that as a, as a very well-respected um, uh, professor of medicine there at the medical college. And the way she had recognized me was that the faculty had a book of photographs of all of the incoming students, and she knew that I was doing this work on near-death experiences. So she said that she had a story to tell me about. So she led me across the campus that night to her office, and she told me that some little while before, um, she had been there when her own mother had died. But as her mother had a cardiac arrest, this uh, physician um, very vigorously tried to resuscitate her mother. But she said at the moment that she saw that her mother passed away, she herself, this physician, felt that she left her body and rose up and looked down. She saw her mother's now deceased body on the bed, and she saw her own body beside the bed trying to resuscitate her mother. And to use her exact words, because I wrote them down that night, she said, I was trying to get my bearings. And as she was in the state of, you know, what's going on, that sort of attitude, she became aware of her mother, again to use her exact words, now in spirit form there beside her. And she said that she sort of, she said her goodbyes to her mother and she saw her mother recede into this intense light that seemed to be beaming out of a tube, uh, as she described it, and in that light, she saw emerging from that light the spirits of, of um, relatives and friends of her mother's who had already died who seemed to be coming to greet her mother. And then she saw her mother kind of merge with these people, and they were all pulled back into this light. And she saw 
uh, she said that as this tube closed off, it did so in a spiral like a camera lens closes. And then this physician found herself back in her own body uh, beside the now deceased body of her mother. Now, that was the first case I had heard, Bob, of what I've come to call a shared death experience or an empathic death experience in which a uh, the bystander has the sense that they are empathically co-living the dying experience of someone there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I wrote Life After Life in 1974, that was the only case of a shared death experience I had, and I didn't want to include it for that reason, but also in case, you know, just, it would have been difficult to tell that story without... Um, letting, in effect, sort of giving clues to people around that, that might be able to identify that woman. So I didn't talk anything about that in my first book because, well, mainly because I only had the one case. But in the intervening years, I began to hear a lot of stories like that from physicians and nurses who said, for example, that as a patient died, they saw the what seemed to be the spirit leave the body of the patient or saw the light in the room change or sometimes sensed apparitions. So I continued to investigate this, and in 1994 I had reached a point where I had enough cases to realize that this was something um, really important. What, what began to happen, Bob, in the, uh, in the early 80s was that whereas up to that time I had heard these mostly from physicians, in the early, then mid, and then late 80s and early 90s, I began to hear many of more of these from the bystanders at the bedside of a dying loved one, like the, the relatives and friends who were gathered there at the bedside. And what I could tell was happening was that... Um, Believe it or not, for anybody who can think back this far, in 1972, when I started medical school, the standard procedure was that when the patient was dying, the doctors and nurses would come and and, and they would escort the family away on the theory that we had then that this would be too overwhelming for the family members and so on. But gradually since that time, the hospital rules and procedures have changed so that now in 2010 it's more the standard procedure that, uh, that that when the patient is dying the doctors and nurses encourage the family to be there and unless the the medical personnel has some particular special relationship with that patient the medical personnel are generally absent and make this a family matter now corresponding to that uh, since In the early 70s, I was hearing these mostly from medical doctors and nurses, but now I'm hearing just a tidal wave of these things from from, uh, other relatives who are there at the bedside of the dying. Well, anyway, in 94, I had reached the point where I wanted to do a systematic study of this. So um, I I went with some friends, other relatives, psychologist and psychiatrist out to um, a state in the West where we did a gathering to figure out how to study this, and that was in May of 1994. Well, it happened to be Mother's Day on the day that we finished our meeting, so I went to the local shopping mall, and I um, used the payphone, <laughs> which is, to think about it, you know, now an antique, but at the time was the, uh, uh, you know, it, it was literally a little payphone, pay and um, so I went there and to call my mom and um, to wish her a happy Mother's Day. When she picked up the phone, I, I of course, asked her, you know, well, how are you doing? And um, so she... Uh, I remember her voice was just very, very chipper and happy, and uh, she said, oh, I'm doing great, was her her words. Uh, and then she mentioned that the day before my, that she had developed a rash. That was on a Saturday. 
So my brothers and sisters had taken her to the doctor just to get it checked out, but the doctor examined her and um, said, in effect, that he didn't think this was anything serious. He said it was just some sort of idiosyncratic reaction, but as a precaution, he gave her an appointment with another doctor on that following Monday, which was the day after Mother's Day. So on Sunday, when I had my conversation with my mom, everything was apparently fine. Well, the next day, when my mom went to the doctor, the doctor said, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and you have two days to two weeks to live. Well, my wife and I went to the hospital, and we were there with my mom the entire two weeks until she did pass away, uh, two weeks after the diagnosis. And as she was dying, Bob, I, I had this experience myself, and so did my wife and my uh, sister who was there in the room and, and my brother-in-law. Basically, as people will often tell you in these things, I don't really have the vocabulary to explain it except to say that, for want of a better term, the geometry of the room changed. And, you know... Uh, hospital room is like a cubicle, right? Or, but, but in an indescribable fashion, it was as though this room had the confirmation of an hourglass almost. In other words, it was constricted at the, at the middle, sort of as though um, it was something like a funnel, to, mm-hmm. uh, to the best term I can use. And the room filled with this just almost palpable light. I mean, I I learned from that experience that what these people call light and the near-death experience, they struggle with the words. It's You could call it light, or you could call it love, or you could call it consciousness, but whatever you want to call it, there it was. And in the midst of this, I heard my mother as she was passing away, I love you. But I, in saying heard, I don't mean exactly an auditory quality. This was like coming, like you would think, mind to mind or heart to heart. My wife there in the room, who is um, a very, very grounded and realistic person, she was... Um, She was president of the National Broadcast Association Community Affairs Division. She had her own television news magazine program in St. Petersburg for 10 years. Um, Just a very, very grounded person, had the same experience that I did. My sister felt the spirit of my father there, who had died 18 months before. And so I can, I'm sure... You can understand being a person like me who's driven mostly by curiosity. What that did, Bob, was that since I was pursuing this investigation primarily out of curiosity, having the experience directly myself sort of diffused my curiosity, and it it took me a long time to sort of integrate this. I mean, it was a very, very powerful experience. But anyway, since that time, I continued gathering cases, and um, finally, a couple of years ago, a good friend of mine, uh, Paul Perry, said, well, you know, why don't we write these up and put them together, Uh, and so I did, and so that's how that, um, the new book, Glimpses of Eternity, came along. Well, we are about ready to take our final break of this hour. When we return, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dr. Turner about what he feels is the best evidence for the survival of consciousness. We'll be back with Drs. Raymond Moody and John Turner. This is Dr. Sally Ryan Feather, the daughter of Dr. J.B. and Louisa Ryan that started the ESP research at Duke University. And I have just appeared on the Bob Hieronymus show. I think this kind of radio does so much for the public. It brings them information where they can get no other way. Well, thank you, Dr. Sally Ryan Featherboy. We had a good time with Sally. What's that? What is that song? 
Hot Rod Sally? No. Mustang Sally. It was Mustang Sally. That's what it was. This is 21st Century Radio. I'm uh, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Doctors Raymond Moody and John or Jack Turner. Tours of the Afterlife and Moody's new book, Glimpses of Eternity, sharing a loved one's passage from this life to the next. It's published by Guidepost. This is one of the most important books you could ever possibly read. Now, Jack, what do you feel is the best evidence for survival of consciousness? Well, I'd like to answer that in a backwards fashion. I'd like to mention <clears throat> some types of uh, evidence that uh, people feel is the proof, the real proof of the afterlife or survival of consciousness. For example, Dr. Gary Schwartz feels that his work with mediums and the information that a mental medium can obtain is absolute proof that there is this what we call an afterlife or the other side of the veil. Then there are others, uh, such as Dr. Craig Hogan and Alan Botkin, who feel that eye movement, desensitization, and reprogramming can lead to what they call induced after-death experiences. And they can take uh, someone out of the audience uh, at a meeting and put them through this type of eye movement desensitization and actually induce a meeting with someone who has passed on. They feel that this is absolutely the best proof. Uh, there are others, and actually the reason I'm on this show uh, now and before and with Dr. Moody is that when my friend and webmaster Martin Simmons uh, made his passing, he had agreed to work with me on researching the afterlife through an electronic means, which is called EVP, electronic voice phenomena. And that led to experiments with that and my involvement, and I've met people like my friend David Roundtree, uh, Masters in Electrical Engineering and soon a PhD in Physics, who scientifically applies uh, his knowledge to the electronic voice phenomena and instrumental transcommunication to show that there is a way to communicate with those who have passed on electronically. David is open-minded. He's not biased one way or the other. He just wants to show what, what is going on. So these are some of the various ways that people say are proof. Others have investigated... Uh, uh, things like, well, could this certainly be a manifestation of something within the brain? And uh, we've talked before about uh, drugs such as LSD and ketamine and also the uh, centrifuge research projects of Dr. Winery and things like this where some of the aspects of the near-death experience can be generated, such as light phenomena, sometimes detachment from the body, but never have there been the key things that developed with that type of experimentation which, which come after the near-death experiences, and those are a change, a change in outlook on life and, and behavior and understanding more about the uh, meaning of love. Uh, these other things don't generate that panoramic uh, life review and so forth. So my answer to your question, I feel the best evidence is the shared or empathic near-death experiences, and that's why I'm anxious to help promote Dr. Moody's great work, because I agree with you, Bob, this is one of the greatest books, and we're on the, on the cusp of something very important. So with that, I'd like to turn it over back to Dr. Moody with this question. Um, empathic. Uh, I was watching something on the 9-11 uh, TV yesterday, and it was a lady talking about her husband who had predicted 9-11 and then died in the disaster. And as she talked, of course, it brought tears to my eyes, and that's what I think is the empathy. So my question for Dr. Moody is to share this experience, this empathic experience. Does someone really have to have a connection with the dying person or just being there when this happens will allow anyone to uh, participate when this does happen? Well, actually, I don't think so because um, now the first case I ever heard was by this medical doctor I mentioned, and, and in that case, she had both a personal relationship with the person who was her mother and also a relationship with, uh, as a physician. But um, initially, as I said, back in the 70s and 80s, I heard these mostly from uh, physicians who or nurses who were there uh, when somebody died, and in many cases, these were uh, doctors, for example, who just happened to be on call in the emergency room, and a patient came in, and um, 
they were they were the person there who happened to resuscitate that patient, but they had no personal connection previously with the um, patient, and yet nonetheless, nonetheless had these very dramatic um, empathic experiences. So I don't think there is necessarily a, uh, a requirement for a close personal relationship with the, the individual. Now, um, that said, I think these days we're hearing them mostly, as, as I mentioned, because of the change in hospital practice from, um, from relatives and loved ones at the bedside. But um, I don't think it's a necessary condition because I have had uh, plenty of cases of doctors who just happened to be there at the time when a patient they had never known um, came in and uh, that they were the person to resuscitate them. Um, but um, I think that uh, the one thing that I've never seen thus far is a case in which the bystander um, uh, who, who, who was there had one of these uh, panoramic life reviews. In other words, that they co-lived the um, life review of the dying person and all of the cases I've had of that, the the individual who experienced the um, co-experienced the panoramic life review was a person who was uh, connected um, very closely with the, the dying individual. But all of these other elements, I've I've heard from um, physicians, for example, who were just happened to be there when a when I. Um, patient uh, had a cardiac arrest and so on. So it was a, a very, very interesting uh, thing here. And uh, just to tell you the truth, this is um, really baffling. Personally, I, as Bob knows, and, and I think um, you're aware too, John, I was not raised a religious person and, uh, and had my first telescope or built my first telescope when I was eight years old and was a devotee of astronomy from the age of seven, as I, as I still am. And um, being not religious and, and having that, that astronomical interest, I had concluded pretty early in my life uh, that um, when you die, your body um, dissolves and your consciousness goes to zero. And... I think that the the opinions you form or the ideas that you have is. Did we lose him? Oh gosh, Rudy, Jack, uh, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Well, I'm sure he'll return. Uh, my producer will check that out. Okay, well, let me expound upon what he's saying. That that makes it really proof because when people who are not connected with the patient can experience these things, then it kind of goes out of the realm of imagination mm -hmm. or fantasy or prior knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that this work is the, is actually the proof. Well, Ray has just joined us again. I wanted to ask something before we we run out of time this hour. Uh, you mentioned Dr. Botkin induced near-death experiences. He joined us a little while back. Um, you know, he works with those who have had great stress, who were in wars by and large, and through other people who were non-living that they had some relationship with, either killed in the war or something along those lines, they have been able to work out uh, and re resolve some of their very severe problems in post-traumatic stress syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. You're aware of that then, huh? Oh, yes, yes. I uh, had been very interested in how that eye movement desensitization works. Mm -hmm. And then how he discovered uh, quite accidentally that it can induce these after-death experiences yeah. and can heal grief and, uh, uh, you know, in a quick manner, can you know, as opposed to regular, regular type of therapy and counseling. So I think there's a lot to be said in how the brain mechanism and consciousness is all tied in. And I think what we're finding out, and Dr. Ray Moody will agree, that all learning is a matter of remembering. I think that was one of Plato's uh, sayings, mm -hmm. and I think we're starting now, as we learn, we're really starting to remember. 
And I think these are things we've always known, and we just have to realize that. And I, I think this is something big is about ready to happen, just as Raymond said. I think so. It's almost as if the veil has been thinning for a period of time, and, and the dimension, which is right next to ours, is becoming uh, more attainable. I think that that's going to uh, be a very important factor in the, in the decade to come, uh, especially with people and their spiritual experiences. Because we are, there isn't a part of us that is immortal. Ray, you were saying something? Yes, that's exactly what I was getting at, that despite this uh, fact that, you know, as a, this was a very hard thing for me to come to terms with since it wasn't something I was exposed to as a child. But I feel personally I've been kind of boxed into a corner here, and that's that uh, anything I could say under these circumstances other than that there does seem to be a state of existence after death, now strikes me as though I'm trying to run away from something or escape from something Mm -hmm. rather than just to face the most plausible thing to say, which is that uh, there does seem to be life after death. And nobody could be more surprised by that than me, really, because of the the particular uh, background and childhood I had. But... um, well, I, you know, share, it's I, share, like I give up. <laughs> I, I share that with you. If the people at the bedside are saying the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, then that certainly knocks the, the 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 foundation out from under the neurophysiological explanation. It sure does. Now, there are friends. There are so many wonderful stories. They're more than stories. They're they're factual events. I'd say that there are at least a score or so of these. And so if you think that this is a highly technical book from that standpoint, uh, you can easily understand this process, by, especially by listening to the, to the stories themselves, uh, reading them, that is. And then we need to get into the seven ele- elements of the shared death experience and how you can prime yourself, because this book actually discusses the possibility of a method by which you might be able to share a, have a near-death shared experience with others. Isn't that correct, sir? Well, I think absolutely, Bob. Just the, <clears throat> just the um, mere fact of knowing about this, I think, um, <clears throat> gives people, in effect, permission to, um, to be ready for it when, when they're there at the, at the bedside of someone who's passing away, which with all the baby boomers now going through that phase of life in which uh, they're losing their parents, as we all know, this is uh, a very, very common thing that's happening now. And I think that because of this, we really are in the midst of a tidal wave of these uh, shared death experiences. Well, we need to take a break here at the top of the hour with our guests, Dr. Raymond, Drs. Raymond Moody and John Turner, Tours of the Afterlife, which was mentioned a little bit earlier, and Moody's new book, Glimpses of Eternity, Sharing a Loved One's Passage from This Life to the Next, published by Guidepost, linked on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. Now listen to my favorite song in the whole world. Friends, I'm going to quote somebody I have high regard for, okay? Because you ever thought about cultural lag or science lag or, or knowledge lag? Well... Goethe looked into this. This is what he said. He said, in the sciences, if anyone advances anything new, people resist with all their might. They speak of the new view with contempt, as if it were not worth the trouble of even so much as an investigation or regard. And thus, a new truth may wait a long time before it can win its way. There's a lot of that happening in all areas of knowledge. When we talk about UFOs, you're going to be so surprised to see or hear uh, from so many generals, colonels, and other guys uh, within the military talk about their UFO experiences. It's coming out. It's coming out of the woodwork. So we better paint it over or something. Now, our guests, of course, are Drs. Raymond Moody and Dr. John Turner, Tours of the Afterlife, and Moody's new book, Glimpses of Eternity, Sharing a Loved One's Passage from This Life to the Next, published by Guidepost. And Dr. Moody... 
Um, we're calling our class together now, friends. Everyone get ready to take some notes. This is important. If you want to know the seven elements of the the shared death experience is, number one, change of geometry. Number yeah. two. Oh, well, I'll, I'll mention it, and then you can just tell us what they are. Change of geometry. Does this mean you got to go to Algebra 604 or something? Well, apparently so, but if uh, on the... Uh, Basically, people tell us that when they enter into this state of consciousness, Bob, uh, space, as you and I have uh, experienced, that in this world is is no longer applicable. Uh, people say rather than going from a three-dimensional geometry, they enter into a state of consciousness at the bedside of the dying where uh, I've had people tell me such things as that they can... Uh, the walls become permeable. The, the wall is no longer a barrier to seeing the outside. Or as in my case, uh, which I've also heard from uh, other people, that the room itself begins to, um, to sort of constrict in the middle and you feel like you're in a sort of funnel. So um, as you enter into this altered state of existence or other state of existence, the three-dimensional rules of geometry that we have uh, that work in everyday life don't really work anymore to describe the experience you're going through. So that's change of geometry, friends. The second one, and a lot of people have heard of this, is mystical light. Yes. People say that uh, the room just fills with light. And a very common uh, thing that people say in this is that at first uh, they think it's something beaming into the um, into the room through the window or something but like some reflection from outside but very quickly they realize that this is not light as we appreciate it here uh, in this frame of existence but some and something else uh, which they may equate with love or or uh, intense consciousness, the best uh, words that some can put on it is a conscious light or a light of uh, complete love and compassion seems to be present in the room as someone dies. Mm -hmm. So far we got change of geometry, mystical light, and then there is music and music sounds. Yes. I hear this all the time. Uh, people hear, as, as their loved ones are dying, they hear beautiful music that's not, certainly not coming over the intercom of the hospital as the, in, in <laughs> any way. And uh, this corresponds very nicely to what we hear from people who have near-death experiences. The, the same thing. They say that uh, in their near-death experience, they, hear, they hear um, beautiful music. And I think also the out-of-body experience is linked to that. Um, yes. I've had quite a number of people who at the bedside of dying loved ones tell us that uh, they themselves leave their body and that they go part way toward this light with their, with their dying loved one. Mm -hmm. So far we've got change of geometry, mystical light, music and musical sounds, and out-of-body experience. Number four is co a co-living life review. Yes. And, Bob, of all of these, this to me is just the most amazing thing. I've, I've heard this uh, from numerous people now, and uh, so much so that I'm confident that any uh, sincere investigator who really, gonna, who really looks into this is going to find cases of this. And... Um, the most remarkable one was a woman I knew about 20-plus years ago in Carrollton, Georgia, an elderly woman who um, uh, had one of these marriages in which literally she, she, was her, uh, she married her childhood friend. They, they grew up together in this small town and uh, then in high school married and, uh, or after, after they graduated from high school. And so they lit, They were married for several decades, but as her husband was dying, she was there with him in the hospital. 
And she said, suddenly, everything that he had ever done sprang up around them in this three-dimensional, fully colored, uh, holographic panorama. Uh, And in connection with this being of complete compassion who was there with them uh, um, helping to review this, and she said, as these things unfolded, she actually could converse with her husband about him, who was uh, plainly uh, seeing this too. So incredible as it may seem, uh, there are abundant, I'm, I'm sure, cases of people who say that as their loved one died, they empathically co-lived the life review of the dying person. Okay, so we got four so far. Change of geometry, mystical light, music and musical sounds, out-of-body experience, and co-living a life review lesson. Five is encountering unworldly or heavenly realms. Oh, this is just so thrilling, this part. Yes, uh, one particular case is of a man who was a hospice counselor who told me that on a couple of occasions as... um, as uh, patients were dying, he became aware of what he uh, tried to put into words as like structures or cities of sheer light. And as you know, Bob, this is what we hear also uh, quite often from people with very profound near-death experiences. Dr. George Ritchie described this, for example, um, seeing a cities of sheer light that seem to be filled with these beings of complete love and compassion. So we can now say that this is sometimes glimpsed also by the bystanders who um, say that it's as though this, this dimension kind of, or a veil kind of parts, and they can see into, into a heavenly realm right there at the bedside of the dying. Number six is missed at death. This is really exciting because uh, I've, I've heard that there, and from other sources, that it is even possible to weigh that mist. Well, yeah, this is something I hear uh, just all the time. I began to hear this from doctors back in the uh, uh, late 70s and through the 80s. Uh, now I hear it very often from uh, loved ones who are present at the bedside, and that is that as the person in the bed dies, um, the bystanders may see what seems to be like a transparent replica of the person, sort of just stand up and move away from the body. Or, or sometimes this is described as a, as a more uh, globular form, like roundish or uh, golden or golden gray colored light, which seems to exit the body from around the area of the head or chest, and uh, very often um, it seems to rise up and to, as far as the bystanders can tell, just to sort of exit through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And uh, a different world is number seven. A different world in the sense that when people come back from this, they tell us that uh, this, the world is no longer the same. I hear this from people all the time. And as you can well imagine, as on the interviews I've had, um, I've been giving on this project uh, in the last few weeks. It's, it's interesting how many people who um, call me to find out about it, uh, it um, have had this experience themselves. Just the other day, for example, a wonderful uh, young journalist called me and um, was asking some very penetrating questions about my uh, new book, and and uh, she then at the end she said, "Well, I found this book very interesting." And then she went on to say, because she said because um, uh, she had this happen to her when her own mother died, oh. and that um, she had been sort of keeping it to herself because she didn't know what word to put on it. And I'm sure, Bob, that. Many, many people are going to be having that same reaction because uh, I can pretty much guarantee you, I haven't done a systematic study on this, but from uh, watching now over 
couple of decades, many, many, many audiences. Um, I can pretty much assure you that these empathic death experiences are as common or maybe even more common at, than as the, um, the near-death experiences that we already know about. And, and in a way, that would stand to reason if you think about it, because most people who have a cardiac arrest sadly do go ahead and die. But uh, there, there are a lot more bystanders around mm -hmm. who, um, who, who uh, go on living after the death of the loved one and are able to tell these things to us. So I think that we've, we're on to something here that is going to put an entirely new uh, light on the old forms of debate. I mean, it's not going to work anymore to say, oh, these experiences are the, you know, the oxygen deprivation to the brain because the bystanders are, are uh, not ill or injured, and yet they have this same experience. And at, at the same time, you know, some of the scoffers may choose at this point to say, well, in the case of the person with a near-death experience, it's the the cutoff of the oxygen flow to the brain, but as for the bystanders, it's just that they're so emotional or hysterical or uh, guilty of wishful thinking or whatever, and that's just not a, a, a rational move. I mean, you know yourself from your interviews, and uh, any, any journalist, for example, would, that, or any attorney, that if you're um, presenting a case to somebody and they... Uh, they offer you one objection, and and then you refute that objection, and then they just move to some other kind of of um, objection. Then that's a sign that they have a weak case. I think that the the intellectually honest thing to do here is just to say, "Oh my goodness! I mean, this is something really, really difficult." I think to put together in the um, and the normal uh, physicalistic view of the world. Well, the reason, one of the reasons I've always admired the sciences is because of the uh, willing suspension of judgment over a period of time, so you can work these problems out. Yes. But unfortunately, that's not been happening uh, with all the people competing to be right when they haven't even studied the material. I see this in just about everything. Let me r go over these seven elements once more. Change of geometry, mystical light, music and musical sounds, out-of-body experience, co-living, a life review, encountering unworldly or heavenly realms, mist at death, a different world. Now, all of these, all of these elements are carefully analyzed and discussed within the book. But we, you know, we just whipped right on through that. I want to get back to Jack, but I want to end up with you with a question, uh, uh, Dr. Moody, on priming yourself. How can you prime yourself? with a shared, uh, uh, shared ex death experience. But first, Jack, um, what is the science behind this? Not just the shared death experience, but the near-death experience, the OBE, because you paid a lot of attention to this. Well, <clears throat> that has a lot to do with how we define consciousness, and that's not an easy thing at all. There are many scientific studies that have been done to try to understand this, and the best way I can answer that in this limited time is to direct your listeners to two great authors who have written about the science. And one is uh, the noted Dr. Pin van Lommel, the cardiologist in, in the Netherlands, who wrote Consciousness Beyond Life, and it's subtitled The Science of the Near-Death Experience. And I'll tell you, I think with that book, hand-in-hand hand, goes another great book by Chris Carter, called Science and the Near-Death Experience, How Consciousness Survives Death. Now, I think your readers will find in these two books, uh, among many others, that these two will guide one to where you need to look if you have any questions or if you're a little bit skeptical, and let's say about the oxygen, the hypercarbia, which is building up of CO2, these other things that are tried to use to explain away this as being a manifestation of the brain, I think these two books will, will really wake someone up. And then if they top this off with Dr. Moody's great book, Glimpses of Eternity, well, they'll have the whole package. Well, what was the name of the first doctor and first book? 
Dr. Pim Van Lamo, a cardiologist who wrote in 2001, published the uh, great uh, work in Lancet that raised a lot of eyebrows. Could you spell his last name? Yes, Van, uh, Pim is his first name, P-I-M, then Van, V-A-N, then L-O-M-M-E-L. And the paper which you can find on the Internet is called Near-Death Experience in Survivors of Cardiac Arrest, a prospective study in the Netherlands. And this was published in 2001, and it had a lot of pro and con, uh, you know, you know, comments made about it. But it began to take interest. And like Dr. Moody, uh, he first heard about this with, uh, you know, George C. Ritchie's experience. So things are very parallel. But these things will give your listeners an idea of where to find the science. So Pim Van Lommel and then Chris Carter. Thank you very much. Now, Raymond, um, tell us about how it might be possible, because you're not saying that this is exactly what it might be, but you're saying that there's a good chance of it, I believe, uh, what, to, that you can prime yourself for a shared death experience. Well, I think the main thing, Bob, is to uh, go back to a hero of yours and mine, and that is Plato. And I don't mean to go literally and read his works, but nonetheless to take on that uh, that attitude, which is that um, we owe it almost ourselves to ourselves as human beings to to look courageously into this question of life after death, because it's the most important question of human existence, and it's the question upon which all the other questions turn. Now, in that sense. I think that even knowing about these experiences um, primes people in the sense that not that it causes the experience, but that people who are aware of this are, um, I think, more at peace as they go into the situation of the death of a loved one to, to prepare oneself with the knowledge that we can. We've already have about near-death experiences and shared death experiences. I think creates the context in which people are are more likely to to um, have such experiences, or at least if they do have them, to be able to talk about them more openly. Mm-hmm. Um, this, even though I had studied this many years, Bob. When it happened to me in 1994, it it really took me by surprise. It really did. And in retrospect, I realized that if I had, if instead of looking directly at my mother as I did, I was focused directly on her, I realized subsequently if I had sort of let myself go and sort of looked upward more in a, in a stance of relaxation, I do appreciate in retrospect that at that point I, I would have been uh, out of my body. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the primary thing is education in the sense that uh, to normalize these things, that this is not um, anything uh, particularly extraordinary, uh, rather that this is, uh, this is part of the, the process of living and the process of living, of course, also includes the process of dying. So I think more than anything else, it become, um, what, what's needed is becoming comfortable with this idea of death and to talk about it, to talk openly with uh, when you have a terminal, mm-hmm. uh, a loved one with a terminal condition, to talk openly with them about their death and certainly, um, uh, by all means, uh, to to be with them throughout the process and not to be afraid to be there with uh, dying loved ones. I've, I've had many cases in my clinical practice where a patient's family, somebody in the family was reluctant to um, go into the actual death and I would sort of gently lead them in and they, they invariably um, tell me in retrospect that they were grateful for that. So I think courage is, is what's needed here, to courage to inquire into this and to realize that, um, as was it James Jeans who said that the world is not merely more, um, let's see, it's, it's not 
merely stranger than we imagine. Oh, it's yes. stranger than we can imagine. Yes, that's it. So, as you note in your book, uh, a well-developed sense of empathy is yes. one element, and, ex- and a sense also of... Uh, of acceptance or surrender that the loved one is going to die and that that acceptance might well be one of the doors to having such an experience. Wow. That's exactly right. Now, this, that's, that's just, this is just wonderful to know and to be able to pass on to tens of millions on this planet because you've only sold 13 million copies of the other book. we got to get... It's <laughs> probably going to Well, I that. think the, that this is very, very important information. I do. I think that this uh, puts an entirely different light on the study of uh, near-death experiences in, in connection with the, the biggest question of all. Well, friends, there's a lot of things we didn't get a chance to touch on, such as people being transformed by these experiences. We didn't talk about the mirror neurons and um, and are they the key to undiscovered uh, other senses? We didn't talk about the Dr. Jonas Salk and the translate states that he went through while creating three books with tens of thousands of pages. Just is just amazing stuff in here. And and uh, I think most of all, all you need to do is get a copy of this book, read it with an open mind. And I believe you're going to live a different life, begin living a different life, because I know many of you are struggling with these things right now. And uh, as a matter of fact, on page 180, Dr. Moody said, Shared death experiences carry with them redemption, hope, grace, and transformation. Wow. Big stuff. Big stuff, you guys. Are you guys still there? Or did I, uh, yep. did I talk you to death? <laughs> I'm mesmerized by hearing Dr. Moody talk. It's always wonderful. And Certainly. likewise, Jack. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both for joining us, Dr. Raymond Moody and Jack Turner. Dr. Jack Turner, that is. And uh, please go on the web to 21stCenturyRadio.com. And when we return, we got some important topics to discuss. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.